Welcome to Tactically Acquired. Our goal is to document military-connected living history in a fun and easy environment. We will capture the stories of our active duty, guard, reservists, veterans, ROTC, and their families, sharing their stories, adventures, and journeys across the military life cycle. The podcast is for anyone interested in joining the military, has been part of the military, or wishes to learn more about military life. In addition, we want to bridge the growing military-civilian divide through education. This is unfiltered, meaning we'll go over the good, the bad, and yes, maybe even the ugly of being a military-connected individual. I'm your host, Rusty Martis, a retired Air Force Mustang and OEF veteran, and I run the Veterans Resource Station at North Kentucky University. My special guest today is a Navy veteran and our first NKU graduate student to come on board. Can I say on board? Yes. Because we're Navy? Sure. So just to get started, do you mind just stating your name and branch of service, please? Sure, yes. I'm Ron Mosby. I served in the United States Navy. Awesome. uh, From 1986 until 1991. Active duty. And then I was a reservist until 1998. That's just great. And I appreciate you taking the time to to step in and uh, be part of our Tactically Acquired podcast today. So... I, so I had a, a, a cousin of mine and uh, some good friends of mine, and of course I met lots of people along the way, that all chose the Navy. And they all kind of had different reasons behind why they chose the Navy. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to go that way. So I'd be happy to, but on the way I'm going to make a slight detour. Sounds because great. One, because the reason I am is because of my father. Mm. So my father was Frederick Mosby. He served in the Navy in World War II. His story is fascinating. He graduated from high school in Morgantown, West Virginia. And then during World War II, of course, he entered into the military. While his brothers chose the Army, he ended up going into the Navy. Mm. And so he was, after boot camp, he was originally assigned as an instructor on Hampton's naval base, which at that time was an all-black naval base. And so at that same time, during that time, the Navy had a program called the V-12 program. The V-12 program was a program designed to boost their officer ranks. So what they did was they would go onto the naval bases, they would administer a test, and then the top test takers would then get scholarships to go to college. And of course, upon graduation, they would be commissioned as naval officers. Awesome. So they came onto Hampton's Naval Base. My father was one of the 500 test takers. He was one of the top four test takers. And so he was granted a full scholarship to attend the University of Rochester. So he attended the University of Rochester. He earned his his bachelor degree in mechanical engineering, but by that time, World War II was over. So he ended up, he ended up uh, getting, he got his commission, but, but he was uh, in, commissioned as a reservist, okay. in essence. So he served active duty like during that time he was going to school, but then afterwards he just got his commission as a reservist. But he went on, this is the interesting part of the story. So after that, he, after he graduated, he, he got a job with General Electric, who at that time was home-based in Schenectady, New York. In 1955, they were winding down their post-war operations, and so they transferred him to Neela Park, which is in Cleveland, Ohio, which is ultimately where I was born. Mm. But he was assigned to a project where they had created a process, but they could not get the process to work in a lamp. So he was assigned to that project. 
he was able to figure out why the process would not work inside of a lamp. So in 1959, uh, my father was awarded a patent for the halogen lamp. Oh, wow, that is awesome. Yeah, so the cool. so the lamps that are in your car, yeah. many of the street lamps that you see, my father patented that lamp process. Not the halogen process, but the halogen lamp itself. Wow, that is very cool. Yeah, so he was a big inspiration for me. And so after I graduated from UC in 1985, I was very fortunate. I actually had several job opportunities, but I decided that I wanted to go into the Navy primarily because he was. So there was a there was an ad in the paper for officer candidate school. And so I went and applied. I will never forget this. The recruiter tried to get me to go line, <laughs> but I didn't want to. And I, although my degree was in communication arts, I had already taken 27 hours of accounting. And I had like a 3.4 grade point average. So I told them I wanted to be a supply corps officer, and so they, uh, they, they considered my application and accepted me into the supply corps officer program. Wow, that oh, great story! First of all, that's awesome. Um, just to the back up just a little bit, a line officer uh, just means that you were been going down the path of being a pilot or something. Like that. No, not a pilot. Okay. It, basically, a line officer would would be would make one eligible for command at sea. Gotcha. So ultimately, the the ultimate goal would be a captain of a ship. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. And uh, so. I know uh, the the producer, Professor Eagles, you've recently met, but uh, you guys gotta get together and talk father stories because his father actually has several patents. One of them being um, a medic that while well, he was in the military as well. Oh so wow! It's, okay. just, it's amazing how innovative and everything how that drove. Uh, oh yes. Certain types of uh, abilities and leadership and uh, qualities there. Out absolutely, there. my my dad was my dad was very smart, mm -hmm. and but he absolutely loved science and so and math. So he, he, he did quite well. That's awesome. Yeah. So you, you went and joined the Navy. Right. Um, part of that because of the feeling that you had and the experience that your father uh, going through and so on and so forth. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, then you end up uh, kind of, you know, staying in for, for a little while and joining through the supply logistics chain. Uh, what does that mean from a Navy perspective? And the reason, and the reason I asked that is I had a Navy person on, on podcast recently, and they never saw a ship. Yeah, that would be a little bit. So, no, that, so that yeah. makes a good point. You, you make yeah. a good point there. So there are, there are basically two, two kind of professional paths. Mm -hmm. One is the line community, which makes one eligible for command at sea. And then the other is the staff community. The staff community, you can still achieve rank, but you will not be eligible for command to sea. You can never, you can never basically command a ship. Interesting. I never knew that. Right. So yeah. your so your staff corps would be things like supply corps, JAG, medical corps. So none of those careers would be eligible for command at sea. And so I chose supply corps. So I graduated from Officer Candidate School. As I mentioned earlier, I did not go to the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. I attended Officer Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island. I do have a couple of stories about that, <laughs> that's for sure. But upon graduation, I then attended Officer, excuse me, Supply Corps School in Athens, Georgia. 
And then after that, I was assigned to a ship. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So you spent time on ship as well. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> as sure. Supply, supply yep. officer. Um, so let's talk, go back and talk a little about OCS or officer okay. candidate school because there's three primary ways that you can join the military as an officer. Um, one is go to academy, like you mentioned. Uh, another is go through reserve officer training core. Uh, the only Navy one in the local area is at Miami University, mm-hmm. uh, University of Miami. Um, and then the third way is through the OCS program. So what was your experience like going through that particular OCS program? So mine was, it was strange at first because mm-hmm. I was not used to military life. As I mentioned, my, my father had gotten out, so I, so I never knew him as a Naval officer. So when I was first chosen and I went to office, officer candidate school, they flew me up to Newport, put me on a bus, and then they threw me in with all of these guys. So it was my first time away from my wife. And mm. so it was, the first night was horrible. Right. It was just, it, it was absolutely horrible. But then, you know, after, you know, you were able to settle down, it was military life, but it was, to me, honestly, uh, Rusty, it was more like a combination of, military life and college life because we, 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 we slept in halls and so you did have a roommate, one roommate, uh, but it was, and then you had to study. There was a lot, lot of studying that you had to do. So it was really more a combination of learning military practices, history and etiquette, and, and, then, and then practicing some of these things. So we like, you know, every Friday we had PIR, which is pass and review. And that's why I was chuckling earlier because I chose to to go through Officer Candidate School, which is a 16-week program, from November until March. So on Narragansett Bay, which is in Newport, Rhode Island, in the dead of winter, you can imagine how cold it was. Absolutely. So you had to stand outside with your piece and wait out there while that cold, cold wind is howling in. Off of off of the water, and boy, it would it would get awful cold. I mean, your fingers would get stiff right. just waiting to, to go in for pass and review. So it was so, so it was a it was a different experience, that's uh, for sure. So it taught you discipline, I guess. A lot, a lot. <laughs> I mean, everything from your you know having to you know eat a certain way, mm-hmm. making sure that your lights were out at night. You know, we did reg run in the mornings and, and things like that. So it was it was quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did you come across during your OCS time, uh, and obviously this is prior to you getting commissioned. That's what part of graduation for OCS means, right? Getting that is commissioned correct. and going on to, to your school. Yes. Um, from that time frame, though, is, is there... Anything that stands out or anyone that stood out that kind of helped set you up for success throughout your the rest of your military career? I think lessons learned probably helped. You know, we saw some good things. We saw some not so good things. I remember um, one of the worst things that I saw was, as I mentioned to you, our reg run. Reg run, I'm sorry, is short for regimental run. So the entire regiment would have to get up in the morning and we would do two miles and then while I was there, they upped it to three miles. Well, the very first day that we had to go out and do a three-mile reg run, one of my one of my classmates sadly um, collapsed mm. and had a heart attack and passed away. Oh, wow! And I mean that was that was very rough. I mean they did have a service for him, but 
you know, to, to see that. I mean, that was probably my entry to say this, this is real and, you know, you, you will experience these things along those lines. I was trying to think if there was like any one person that, that really had an impact during that time. I, I can't say that there was one person. I think it were just several because a lot of my classmates were enlisted mm. and they were and, and they were part of this that, so it, it wasn't it wasn't called a direct commission that, that was the other thing I was going to mention to you because there is another form there is another way that an enlisted could get a commission which is a direct commission absolutely so many of these sailors had applied for officer candidate school and then they they, they were accepted what with the provision that they had to pass, and if they did not pass, then they went back into the enlisted ranks. So I knew a couple that did not make it, you know. But then, uh, you know, you knew some other people that were just, you could just kind of tell that they were they were top-notch, you know, students, and, and you knew that they were probably going to do well in their military careers. And so I think that it was probably just having that, all-around experience with all of them that really stood out to me, at least from officer candidates. Absolutely. And then you kind of went for to your supply logistics uh, school in Georgia. Or not Georgia. No, yeah, you're right. Athens, at, Georgia. Athens, Georgia. I was going to say Atlanta. Mm. Athens, Georgia. Yes. And uh, kind of what was that experience like, Com especially in comparison to what A lot better. From? Okay. <laughs> so it was a lot better because, right. A, I was commissioned. Right. And then, B, I was able to bring my family with me. So up at Newport, your family wasn't with you. You were on base the entire time. So I was really lonely. And, you know, because I was married at the time. Right. So, you know, I was, you know, I missed my, in officer candidate school, I missed my wife. We had a little child at the time. So that was emotionally hard for me. Absolutely. All right. But, but, when we, but when we graduated and we went to supply corps school, we were able to take our family. So it was, so for me, it was much better. I felt more, I just, I, I felt more connected at that time. So they had a lot of great things, you know, they had the softball leagues and, you know, they just, they had things that you could do, you know, while you were down there outside of class. But I think just being able to have the family down there, yes, it was military life. You had to wear your uniform all the time. But it just it, it helped, you know. Just it, it just helped to to really get you, uh, you know, kind of a little more acclimated. Mm -hmm. The school itself was is a school that basically where you're in class basically eight hours a day, but you're 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 kind of simulating, if you will, shipboard life, uh, especially you know, kind of managing inventory and you know, learning the principles of food service management, dispersing, and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, so it was so so I think that that one was a, a, a much different experience. Well, I think it's pretty cool for lack of a better term that they allowed your family to come yes because it kind of got them acclimated too to yes. the military life that you're going to be now be living right um, as you go forth. And a slow adjustment as opposed to a sudden adjustment absolutely because they were with me, but we were on shore duty, so it kind of helped to prepare them when I got to the ship. Yeah so let's talk about ship so <laughs> uh, was it, did you go through a whole bunch of different ships, or was it just one ship that you were primarily responsible for, and where was that located? <laughs> I, I was on one ship. Okay. It was the USS Suribachi, AE-21. It was homeported in Leonardo, New Jersey. New Jersey. In New Jersey, uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm laughing, Rusty, because my very first experience <laughs> when, I was, when I reported for duty to the ship so our so I got to tell you our ship 
because I was on an ammunition ship, the you know the pier is generally long anyway. But with your ammunition ships, they're longer typically. So you're talking about at least two miles out, you know, from mm. the from the from the gate, right? So so I come in, and so you have to wait for the bus to take you out there. And I remember uh, there was a guy that was waiting at the kind of at the bus stop, if you will, with me, um, and <laughs> I looked at him. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy had tattoos on his earlobes. <laughs> he had tattoos on his arms, of course. He was, like, missing a front tooth. He, I mean, he was the, he was the quintessential Popeye. Right. He had the grovelly voice. And that is the first bosun mate that I ever met <laughs> in the military. <laughs> and he was a great guy, though. I have to tell you, he was yeah. a great guy. And 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 may God rest his soul. He's he's no longer with us. But BM1 Page was just a he. He was the he was that Navy guy. He really, really was old school. Kind he of. was old school, absolutely, one hundred percent. Right. But he was a really good. Bosun mate, and he was a really good leader. But that was li- like he was literally the first person. Even before I reported onto the ship, that was the first guy that I met. And uh, and then I just you know I after I was assigned to the ship and reported on duty, you know, then you slowly start to get know get to know different people. But then his boss, who was another lieutenant, who was actually what they call a Mustang. So mm-hmm. for for your listeners who may not know, a Mustang is basically one who started off as an enlisted and then received a direct commission. So they call them Mustangs. And so he was the he, he was the deck officer. And he just had such a command of the ship during sea and anchor detail. It was just it, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. To watch him work was just he he probably he, even though he never knew it he he probably had a a much larger impact on my military life even than I gave him credit for at the time yeah that's awesome yeah and uh so that i i'm always curious when i talk to uh navy veterans on their time on the ship mm-hmm. so how often were you gone when you were um, assigned to that particular ship? So that is a, another great question. So life on the ship is, is, is very different, mm-hmm. I, I think. You were away from sea, but just because you were in port did not mean that you were still away from your family. So what happened was typically this. We had two what they call watch shifts. When you would pull into port, especially when you were coming back from a long cruise, you would stand typically one in four, which means that one day out of every four, you would have to stay on the ship. But when you're preparing to go out to sea, you would stand one in three. So it would be you know, day one, day two, and then the third, you have to spend the night on the ship. So if you think about it, one in four or one in three, one in three is two days a week. One in four, at least one day a week, but more like seven times a month, you would have to spend the night on the ship. So while we were away, you know, people think of the six-month cruise. Yes, we had the six-month cruise, but we also had a, what they called a North Atlantic cruise, which I believe that was six weeks, and we had to go down to Gitmo for several weeks. And so you always had to do these little 
cruises in between. So you're spending actually quite a bit of time when you when you look at it from a cumulative perspective, spend quite a bit of time away um, on on the ship. Uh, the The cruise itself, you would the, the the ship would probably go out for a cruise once every two to three years. I say two to three, so maybe two two and a half years. But but you're you're going out on a six month cruise, but in between that, you're either being tested or you're 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 going out for trials or whatever. So. You're, you're out quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting because I didn't necessarily realize that, but it makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Did you ever see anything uh, when you're out in the ocean? I- I'm thinking storms, uh, you know. Yes. <laughs> yes. I will tell you one. I'll give you, I'll give you one, just one of the sea stories. So we were in a bad storm and my friend was the officer of the deck at the time he was a good friend of mine but boy we were he he was he was guiding the ship he was leading the ship um and he something happened where he was trying to make a turn i guess as he was trying to navigate through the storm the storm was creating some pretty significant waves i mean like we're not talking like 3 feet we're more we're talking more like eight feet, eight foot waves, mm-hmm. maybe even a bit higher. Anyhow, he ended up turning right into a trough. He, he, he turned right into a trough. <laughs> and at one moment, the ship literally took a 30-degree roll. Wow. A 30-degree roll. So if you think of 30 degrees, this is, this is straight up, right? Nice. Vertical. He was 30 degrees. I mean, things Sideways went everywhere. Yeah. All of my cooks, supplies, utensils, everything went from one side of the ship to the other. You know, my vending machines fell over. It was crazy. It just, it, 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 yes, but that was a that was a wild moment I, that I'll never forget. On so do you go out on ships still today? Are no. you a cruise guy? <laughs> no. Yes. Yes. Well, I don't go out on military ships, but yes, my wife and I have been out on a couple of cruises, which have been... Which have been much calmer. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, by the way, speaking of which, so it's kind of interesting <laughs> that you mentioned this. You, you were talking about life on the ship. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 my ship, which was an ammunition ship, was the 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 keel was laid in 1952. So you know, even at that time, it was a 30. You know, that was like 30 over 30 years old. Right. And it had for its defense, it had at the time, you know, two five-inch fifties on the front. So it really wasn't that great. And if you hit twenty knots, it was like you bouncing were bouncing on. on the water <laughs> like that. But it was. But what I was going to tell you is five hundred and twelve feet long, and seventy-two feet wide. So your entire life consisted of that little mm-hmm. space. Not even two football fields, and only seventy-two feet wide. So you're not even talking about a third of the length. Of, of, of the field. So everything that we did was, was done on that ship. How many uh, crew did you have on your particular ship? So I think the total crew complement was like 300. Hmm. So, and so we had like 21 officers, I believe. So we did have a chaplain, and then you had, you know, your department heads. So you had a supply department, you had an operations department, an engineering department, and a deck department. And then, of course, you had the CO and the XO. And the the XO, just for those that might not know what that means, is kind of like the second in charge, is it? Yes. So X is short for executive officer. Mm-hmm. He is a second in command. 
Gotcha. And so um, how did, and I'm getting off subject a little bit, but how did your military service transition into your civilian life? Ooh, Rusty, that's a great question. Because I think that, you know, if, if we learn things from the military, I, I think that there are a lot of values. Mm -hmm. and, and I did hear that even from my, in my last position. So to me, and this is just my personal perspective, but what I remembered all the time was that at, while I was serving, I was serving to protect the rights of the citizens. And what was so important about that was that to me, it didn't matter if the citizen agreed with my perspective or not. I, there could be a United States citizen that just says, I hate the military, mm -hmm. but I'm protecting his or her right to say that. Okay. So I say that because what I learned was something about loyalty, you know, loyalty to your country, but then you also have loyalty to, as you said, your fellow officers, loyalty to the commanding officer. So I think loyalty was like one huge value that I could see that, that, that would transfer over um, to my civilian life. Awesome. I appreciate you sharing that information. And uh, there's a lot of capabilities, uh, abilities that you get by just serving in the military that uh, brings forth and I think loyalty is such a tremendous one that most people don't think about or right. say or talk about. Yes. Um, we talk about other things like leadership and so on and so forth. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, so something just to clarify, I want to go back real quick, just clarify something. So when you go to OCS, you already have a degree from a college. Correct. So you already graduated college. So what kind of brought you back to NKU to continue your education at this stage? So, interestingly enough, it was my last position. So I have been, uh, I, I've been very passionate and interested in government for pretty much my whole adult life. So I've served at every level of government. So I was a military officer. I served at the state level as a public information officer for the Ohio Department of Transportation. Mm -hmm. I served at the county level where I served at the Board of Elections as an elections official. And at the local level, I, I served some time on my local city council. Mm -hmm. And then I was also a public administrator. And as well, I ran for state representative. Oh. So, I've, so I've had a lot of public service experience but I think that my last position as public as city administrator really brought forth, it really brought out of me something that I, I wanted to just kind of learn more about it to perhaps be even better in my profession. And so I knew some of my colleagues who were doing quite well, who all had one thing in common, and that was that they had, they had completed NKU's MPA program. Yes. And so that's what really, and, and then the other thing was this. So while I was sharing, uh, or excuse me, while I was working there, I had a student who was uh, working on his capstone project and he came in to help us complete and put together a request for proposal for our comprehensive plan. And he did such a wonderful job. I think that too was kind of one of the things that I said, you know what? If he's part of this program, this is a program that I want to learn more about. So I, uh, so I, and I'll, and I'll give him a, a shameless plug. 
but his, his name was Christopher Mokas, and he was a graduate student in the MPA program. And, and I just really appreciated the work that he did for us. And so, uh, and that's what made me uh, uh, come to look at that program. Well, that's awesome. We're glad you're here. Yeah, I appreciate you. you coming in, not only to do the podcast, but being here at NKU and yes. taking that MPA program, the Master Public I do feel like Rodney Dangerfield, though. <laughs> Why's that? Back to school. Did Back you ever to see school, that? Yes, see yeah, that absolutely. I'm not quite maybe as old as he is, but I'm getting there. So. <laughs> well, there's... Um, there's a lot of opportunity after you get out of service um, to get some additional schooling and things along that line. Um, once you got out, uh, what was kind of your next step? Did you jump right into other schooling or did you go right into a job or how, how did that work for you? No, I didn't jump directly into school. And at the time that I got out, I mean, to be honest with you, it was not an easy time. Mm -hmm. um, this was around 1991. And at that time, I was living in New Jersey, I and and so I, so I decided that I was just going to kind of directly go work directly into in private industry. Hmm. I had looked at certain government jobs, but for whatever reason, I, they they were telling me that I, I I felt like I was being told that I had to start at a level that was probably lower initially than what I thought, mm -hmm. and I'm saying it this way that I thought at the right. time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, Rusty, it was strange because I, you know, I looked at it and I said, well, wait a minute. Like, for example, my last tour of duty was at the Naval Air Engineering Center. I was an assistant comptroller, and, and that was a $100 million facility that, that I was the assist, assistant comptroller of. So I was like, you know, this is a pretty big operation. Absolutely. Here, right? yeah. But when I got out, I found out that the immediate experience didn't necessarily transfer into the field that I wanted to go into because I was thinking about maybe trying to get back into banking or, as I mentioned to you, in, in, in government service. Mm -hmm. So what I ended up doing was going into private industry. I, I literally started working with a, a, a franchise owner at a, at a fast food restaurant. Nice. So I was a, a manager or assistant manager there before I finally went to Prudential. And so I actually worked as a captive agent for Prudential for a couple of years. And actually now, to your point, that was one of the reasons that they hired me because they said they did like my military experience. Yeah. So I think the first quarter there, they recognized me as, uh, you know, agent of the, you know, the, I was like the regional leader of the, of that region, you know, mm -hmm. in, in my first quarter. I think that was one of the bigger uh, recognitions that I kind of remembered from that. But I just simply use that to, to honestly help me kind of segue back into banking and then eventually coming back here to the Cincinnati area. Awesome. Well, we're glad you're back. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> did you uh, go from Jersey to Cincinnati then? or I did. And, okay. you know, it's strange because I actually grew up in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the military, they will either allow you to go back to your home of record, which at that time would have been Cincinnati, or they would have sent me back to Cleveland as well. But I chose neither. Right. I chose to just go ahead and stay in, in New Jersey at that time. Yeah. So um, as part of that transitioning out of the service and uh, uh, going work for the, the public industry, um, is there anything that you kind of wish that, quote, unquote, civilians knew about that transitional process or about your, oh, yeah. your military that uh, you Everyone's Everyone's experience is different, but my experience was this. My wife and I 
had just had our third child. So in a six-week period, she had our, our, our oldest son, our third child. Two weeks later, we were out of military housing. And then a month later, we were out of the military altogether. What I think would be helpful for people is to, is particularly civilians, to understand that you you have a person that is coming from what you and I would probably know as a military life, mm-hmm. and a military life is just it is different. It's it's a it's a tight community, but everything about their mindset is different. The way that they tell time is different. You and I are. You know, today we're talking and, you know, we might, let's say we, let's say you tell me that we'll end at 5 p.m. Well, I would say that we're ending at 1700. You know, when you, when you, when you know military etiquette, you know, words like yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, which are a lot of times words that people are not familiar with today. Um, you know, you're accustomed to making your bed a certain way. All of these things that you're bringing out, I think it would be important for people to know that, you know, no one just drops that. I mean, those are things that you care, you hang on to for a long time. And to give a, a, give that, that service member, I believe, you know, that it isn't even a benefit of the doubt, but just give them that, I think, respect for having served to, as I mentioned to you earlier, protect your rights, mm-hmm. right, to protect your freedoms, your liberties, and to understand that particularly if they are a service member who has actually been through maybe a conflict, that they've seen some things and experienced some things, and so their mindset is going to be a little bit different. So I would say to just, you know, be sensitive to that. I, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's something that for a lot of service members, it means a lot to them. Mm-hmm. For example... I earned a Navy Achievement Medal when, when I was there. Now, some people say, what's a Navy Achievement Medal? But I know what I had to do. You right. know, my department head had to go off the ship for, uh, d- during an emergency. And so I had to manage the entire department on the ship. And I had to do that for about six weeks. So it was not easy. You know, we were responsible for mail, passengers, and cargo for the entire fleet. Right. And I had to do that day in and day out, you know, for those six days. Or six weeks, excuse me. So, I, yeah, I, I just say to just be sensitive to, to the fact that they're coming from one way of life and then coming back into another. Yeah, and I think a lot of times what, I'll keep using the air quotes that you can't see, yeah. but uh, uh, civilians um, don't understand per se is from day one, when you go into OCS or boot camp or whatever you might do, um, your life is totally different than when you came in. And even though you spent four, six, eight, 20 years in the military, you're taught that the entire time, day in and day out. So it takes time to get back into that. It day. does. The way you write letters is different. I mean, it's yeah. just everything. The way you, the way you communicate, you're, you're used to a certain form and style of mm-hmm. communication that doesn't necessarily translate immediately to what I might, you and I would call the civilian or private sector. Right. So yeah, just to be, just to be patient and, and, and understanding with them on that. I'll give you a prime example, and this is a silly example, but when I first came to work at NKU, I wasn't here longer than a week, and I don't even remember the conversation, but it was via email, and I just sent back an email that said, Roger that. That's all I said. <laughs> Immediately got email back and said, I think you meant um, somebody, this for someone else. My name's not Roger. 
<laughs> I was like, that's my fault. My bad. <laughs> yeah. But that's a that's a perfect example yeah. though. Right? You're meaning one thing, they perceive it as another just because that person may not have had military experience. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you were um, you had mentioned that you were married when you joined the military. Uh, do you have any advice for either couples that are married in the military right now or someone that's thinking about joining the military that is already married or going to get married? Wow, that's really good. I, I am very passionate about marriage, so I will preface what I'm about to tell you with recognizing that personally, I take marriage really seriously it's a it isn't a contract to me it's it's more of a covenant so yes I would say you know in the military I do I, I will say that I do think that the services ha- have done a pretty good job and I think that they're constantly trying to improve teaching people how to separate like when they're when that spouse has to go away for duty and especially in the Navy uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this lightly or anything, but as you asked me earlier, when you're in the Navy, you're gone for six months mm-hmm. and sometimes longer. And, you know, that's a, that's a very traumatic experience for a spouse who now has to, you know, if, if their children have to raise the children on their own. And, and so, so there are just a lot of things. And then there is the, and then there is the challenge of coming back and being reacclimated to the family. So I would say that, yes, I, I think I learned that prior to leaving, make sure that you have quality time together. It isn't, it, it, it's, it's having time together, but it's having that quality time. Making sure that there is plenty of communication about what things can happen, making sure that you've got powers of attorney lined up, you know, prior to you leaving, um, making sure that you're able to talk about, you know, what um, what this what the spouse that's being left behind may do in the case of certain emergencies, things like that. I guess it's kind of the, I won't say final question because I got one more follow-up question to you, but uh, just from my experience, again, with my cousin being in the Navy, mm-hmm. and he always talked about there's really kind of two different types of Navy personnel. Well, and what I've learned recently is one that stays on shore, one that goes out to sea. Once you're out to sea, I guess it's one that crosses over the equator. Oh. <laughs> so that is, so there are a couple actually. Okay. So the equator is the big one that everybody knows about. So when you cross over the equator and you go into the, the southern hemisphere, they have a, a ritual that they call shellback. Hmm. Now, I'm not a shellback, so I never crossed the equator. But that is a that is a a long held tradition. They probably do it different now. I, I have to tell you, I'm not as up on how they do it. But that used to be quite an experience. But yes, uh, that that experience of becoming a shellback is so important. In fact, they would actually give you a card to prove that you were a shellback. Wow. So if you so. I couldn't lie to you about it. If you came to me and you said, Ron, are you a shellback? And I said, yes. You And you would then say, show me your card. I have a card. So I couldn't prove to you that. But there was another one. And this is the one that I was part of. So when you go into the Northern Atlantic, they have another ritual that they would call blue nose. Mm. So if you, if you went up into the uh, Arctic Ocean, and I can't remember exactly where, but... The point was you then they had another little ceremony that they would call your blue nose ceremony, and that was the one that I got. So 
Yes, but Shellback is the is probably the big one. For yeah. Well, and you you had spent um, time, I think, in the Mediterranean, Atlantic. Uh, you you hit a bunch of oceans anyway. I did. Yeah. Yes. You were you were out there quite a bit. Yep. Um, well, I could sit and talk to you forever, but just for the sake of time, uh, maybe I'll bring you back on if you're open to it, and we'll oh, sure. delve into more and go into more stories and so on and so forth. Absolutely. Um, but any kind of final thoughts, anything that uh, we want to share or get the information out? You know, I would just conclude by saying I have no regrets about what I what I did. I was very honored to serve as a naval officer. I was not one to look for any kind of recognition. You know, somebody said I mean like I. I just, I just felt like it was part of my duty of sorts as an American citizen. But I feel that the experience is invaluable. I feel that it helps you appreciate your, your liberties even that much more. And it puts, it, it, you know, you, you have kind of a fraternity, a bond. You know, with even service members who are in different uh, services, That's right? Mm-hmm. So even though I may not have served in the Army... Anytime I look at an army or an air force, like I appreciate what they did, so I think that in that sense, I yes, I I think it gives you a, helps you see your 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 rights from a different perspective. Um, so I would encourage people, you know, to 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 do that if they're considering. If anybody listening is considering joining the military, I would hope that this conversation might just encourage them. And even if they wanted to become an officer. I would absolutely in, encourage that, but but absolutely, I would definitely say that I have no regrets about it. Um, I'm I'm very glad. I was telling you before, you know, my wife has been with me the entire time, so we've been married 38 years. So That's she was it. she was there, you know, during that time. So uh, I'm I'm very grateful for it. Well, thank you. I think that's perfectly said and. Uh... I just want to thank you very much again for taking the time to come by and be on Tactically Acquired. Thank you. 